Welcome to another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I'd like to cover a book that I already did in a previous podcast. Go back, take a look at another part of it. It's called Confronting Christianity. Rebecca McLaughlin is the author. She subtitles it 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. 12 Hard Questions. And she's got them. They're, they're difficult ones. And I wanted to look at her first one. Uh, by the way, a few of the other questions. Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? How can you say there's only one true faith? Doesn't religion hinder morality? Doesn't religion cause violence? And so on. So these are the things we hear about today. Um, we don't hear as much about, gee, I don't know if I trust the Bible or, you know, what about some event in the Old Testament? Or sometimes we hear about contradictions in the Bible. But these are the issues that she's mentioning here that we're hearing these days. Uh, a lot of issues regarding morality and things like that. People are concerned about Christianity. So I want to look at her first chapter, the first question of the 12 that she says people are asking. And this is a good one. It's called, Aren't We Better Off Without Religion? She talks about herself when she was back in college. And uh, she was uh, she was into Jesus at that time. And she uh, was part of a Christian student group at Cambridge, and she said, we knocked on dorm room doors to deliver gospel booklets, book, booklets and discuss Jesus, but said a lot of people thought, oh, come on, you're a Christian and you're in college, that it just doesn't go together. We're better off without a, a Christian faith. And she says, now we've got the new atheists out there. And she said, they have spun a credibility-killing web around faith. So... Uh, she says that's the direction things seem to be going. You've got Sam Harris in 2004. He had a book called The End of Faith. Uh, same year, Richard Dawkins came out with A God Delusion. That was on the bestseller list, she said, for 51 weeks. Then in 2008, Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great. That's his book. And he says these men came out and they preached that Christianity was not only implausible, it wasn't even desirable. So it wasn't so much the logic of it, but it was the desirability and uh, how much better off people would be if they were atheists. Dawkins ridiculed a faith that was disproved by science. Um, Hitchens said, come on, you, you think Christianity is a force for good? No way. And so uh, there's a man who had a TED Talk in 2011, I guess it was very popular, called Atheism 2.0. Uh, a man advocated a new kind of atheism to retain at least kind of the trappings of religion without the downside of belief. And he said, you know, you got these black American preachers that stand up and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Savior. And he said, we need to laud our heroes. Thank you, Plato. Thank you, Shakespeare. Thank you, Jane Austen. And then she pauses a little irony here. She says, one wonders how Shakespeare, whose world was fundamentally shaped by Christianity, would have felt about being cast as some kind of atheist icon. And then she says, but when it comes to Jane Austen, this is a woman of deep, explicit, and abiding faith in Jesus. She would be appalled. Right, then she mentions that 2016, there was a reason rally to mobile atheists and agnostics. And they had all sorts of speakers that said they invoked Martin Luther King's March on Washington. And she again knows uh, the irony of that. She said, as if a rally that despised Christianity would have pleased one of the most powerful Christian preachers in American history. Uh, so she said... We've got skeptical storytellers that have captured our imaginations that are taking us away from Christianity. Margaret Atwood wrote a book called The Handmaid's Tale, a dystopian novel where 
You have a Christian regime that's repressive. Uh, The Doctor Who series, she said, and she's English, by the way, the author, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. And she talks about the Doctor Who series, and she said it had such a hard anti-Christian message going on in there. And she said, you know, in a way, we probably dug our own graves as Christians. People have, uh, you know, people, Christians have kind of thought atheism is probably the norm, and Christianity is the outlier here. But she says, come on, Christians invented the university. They said, yet studying is seen as a threat to faith. Christians invented science, yet science is seen as being antithetical to Christianity. And she says, well, what's going on here? What, what have we got as a result of this skepticism in today's world? She said, well, one thing we're noticing is that many more people are calling themselves nuns. In other words, no religious affiliation. She said uh, they surveyed incoming freshmen at U.S. universities in 2016, and almost a third said they had no religious affiliation. But she said, okay, but she said, we don't have to assume that everything's black and, and ruinous. She said, 69% of U.S. college students still identify as religious, and of those, 60% identify as Christian. Okay, she said, that doesn't mean that they have active faith, but she said, more students are identifying as Baptists than atheists. So she said, we got to be careful to, to talk about the secularization and the universities going so far downhill. And she said, the other thing that's interesting to her is, this decline of religious affiliation is not a byproduct of diversity. Atheism, she said, is actually overrepresented by white men, but women and students of color are more likely to be religious. And she said, if you look at historically black universities, something like 85% of the students identify as Christian and only 11% as agnostic, atheist, or none. And she said, yeah, but it is true. The, the proportion of religiously unaffiliated students in the U.S. is growing. And she said, Are, so what's going on? Are today's students just waking up to the fact that we don't need religion anymore? Are we better off without it, as her uh, title to this talks about? Well, this is what she's going to do for the rest of the chapter here to show the answer is, are we better off without religion? No, and a capital N on that one. And she starts off in this section looking at a Harvard School of Public Health professor who wrote uh, a USA Today op-ed in 2016 called Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. Isn't that interesting? Here's how it starts. If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? Well, they, they talk about the mental and physical health benefits. I say they because uh, there, were, there were two authors that did this, a professor and a journalist. So it says those authors tell the, the physical and the mental health benefits from people who attend regular religious services. Uh, it reduces mortality rates by 20 to 30 percent. Those who attend services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to to divorce, they're more self-controlled. Now, isn't that interesting? See, this is something I keep trying to stress with my apologetics class and other people I'm talking to Sunday morning classes, is that we as Christians, when we offer Christianity to others, it's not because it's something we happen to just like or something we uh, we're saying you're wrong here's here try our way we're not saying that we're saying god has made all of us to be 
and act in a certain way. And Christianity is going to bless our lives. It's going to encourage the best that we can be. And so when people who are into transgender or whatever it is, talk to us, homosexuality, talk to us, we can say, we're not frightened of somebody that's different. We're not angry at somebody that's different. We want the best for everyone. And the best seems to be, in this case, religion. Now, it's more general, of course, than Christianity. But that if religious people, in this case, actually end up with more mental and physical health benefits. She said, you know, to say religion is bad for you is kind of like saying drugs are bad for you, but not distinguishing between cocaine and life-saving medication. She said, in general, religious participation appears to be good for your health and happiness. And so she said, flip it around. What's going on here? Well, if we're heading towards secularization in America, that's a public health crisis. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? So she said, why is Christianity good? And this is the last part of her chapter, and I like this a lot. I'm tempted to develop some of this uh, for some talks that I might do in the future. So why is Christianity good? Well, number one, religion fosters relationships, and relationships matter. And they've done all sorts of studies of well-being. And uh, again, this is Harvard. There was a study. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. It says, it's kind of interesting, the subjects that were part of this thought their happiness would depend on fame or high achievement or wealth, but in reality, the happiest and healthiest people prioritize relationships, family and friends and community. Okay, so what else? Why else is Christianity good? It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's in Acts. It says, giving is actually good for us. Volunteering has a positive impact on our mental and physical health. And by the way, her book is full of footnotes, so she's not just winging this material. She tells you where you can find the, the uh, material that she's talking about here. Here's a survey. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time, too, and of their blood. All right, here's the third thing that's the reason why Christianity is good. Love of money disappoints. It says many of us live as if money is going to buy us happiness and we end up sacrificing what's really valuable, family and friendships. They said there's evidence to suggest beyond a basic level of security, if you get more wealth, it only is slightly correlated with an increased sense of well-being. In fact, it says since 1972, income in this country per capita has more than doubled. Okay, so we've got twice as much money as we had in 1972. But happiness has either been unchanged or has actually slightly declined. Okay, why else is Christianity good? Work works, she says, when it's a calling. So Christians are called to see work as part of their worship, whether they're sweeping floors or whatever they're doing. She said this seems to be good advice. Psychological research suggests we need meaningful work to thrive. If we're just working for money, we find it unsatisfying. But if we put our hearts into our work and we see it as a calling that resonates with our values and connects us to people, we experience joy. And I love this statement here. Here's a psychology professor tells a parable to illustrate this. Three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first says, I'm laying bricks. The second says, I'm building a church. The third says, I'm building the house of God. So the first bricklayer has a job, right? He, he or she said, I'm laying bricks. The second one says, I'm building a church. That's a career. But the third one says, I'm building a house of God. That's a calling. 
She said, we can even apply that to the least glamorous jobs. So we gain satisfaction, whatever it is. If we put our hearts into the work and connect it to a larger pur- purpose, it's good for us. What's another reason why Christianity is good or religion in general? We can be happy in all circumstances. Now that's counterintuitive, isn't it? But Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's in Philippians 4. She says, you know, that may sound like wishful thinking, but modern psychology suggests that we have a highly developed ability to synthesize happiness. A high uh, Harvard psychology professor called it our psychological immune system. Isn't that interesting? And uh, lots of quotes here about individuals who have found joy in adversity. I mean, here's one. This is an African-American man who is convicted of murdering two white police officers. He spent 37 years in prison, and they found out it wasn't him. On his release, he declared, I don't have one minute's regret. It was a glorious experience. This man was sustained by his Christian faith. Uh, He said, and he had gotten uh, hurt. He said, uh, I'd never had a personal relationship with God until I was lying at the point of death. And so he's um, found happiness despite his situation. Okay, what are a couple other reasons? Why else is Christianity good? Gratitude is good for us. Psychologists, she points out today, have discovered that conscious daily gratitude is good for you. And they had a comparison between people who kept a gratitude journal and those that didn't. The ones who kept a journal had fewer physical symptoms, felt better about their lives, or more optimistic about the upcoming week of life. And one psychology professor said gratitude is the forgotten factor in happiness research. And she says gratitude is buried in the heart of Christianity. Christians believe God created us and every good thing we have, but the big thing, of course, for Christians is salvation is a free gift because of the dying and suffering of Jesus in our place. I mean, you talk about gratitude. That's exactly what we should be demonstrating every day. Okay, why else uh, should we appreciate religion, especially Christianity? Why is it better for us than not having religion? It creates self-control and perseverance, and that helps us thrive. I mean, Christians are called to live lives characterized by endurance and costly self-control. Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. That's 2 Peter 1. Uh, We get uh, Hebrews says, let us run with endurance. The race is set before us. That's Hebrews 12. So she says, you know, the Bible judges the human condition well. Perseverance and self-control, that's the way you get past some tough things in life. She quotes a psychologist who says that quality of grit, and she def- the psychologist defends, uh, defines that as passion and perseverance for very long-term goals, that can be more predictive for a person's success than intelligence, good looks, health, or IQ. I believe in so strongly in that. Could I go back and uh, share that one more time with you? This is a psychologist who says the quality of grit defined as passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. She says grit can be more productive, uh, predictive of a person's success than social intelligence, good looks, health, or IQ. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, so that's powerful. 
One more thing. What else can Christianity do? Forgiveness is foundational in there. Jesus grounded human forgiveness in the radical forgiveness of God, didn't he? If you're forgiven, you should forgive. And it turns out that's for our good as well. It's powerful if we forgive others. It says that's linked to multiple positive mental and physical health outcomes if we forgive. All right, well, I'm going to wrap up the chapter here. Um, toward the end, she said, basically, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger in their lives. And, of course, the author says that could be several different things, but what's the biggest thing that we can connect to? God. And she says that kind of connectivity is hard to replicate. Sure, we could get connected to a political ideology or an ethical cause. And she said, those are good. And that would bring meaning. But she's going to explore later on that when you get to the historical and philosophical foundations of some of our deepest ethical commitments, there's Christianity. So I'll end the chapter with what she says here. The positive effects, remember the chapter was, aren't we better off without religion? And she said, no. She said there's compelling evidence that many individual and social goods come from religious participation, that Christianity in particular is well aligned with the findings of modern psychology. And she said, before we start buying into religion poison, poisons everything, we should think about the positive effects of religious participation, what it does for our mental and our physical health. And she uh, ends up at the chapter quoting a Harvard professor who's also a world expert on the mental and physical benefits of religious participation. His name is Tyler Vanderweel, V-A-N-D-E-R-W-E-E-L-E. -E -E -E. Okay, Tyler Vanderweel. He says Christianity provides the best framework for understanding different aspects of reality. He suggests that any educated person should, at some point, have critically examined the claims of Christianity and should be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe them. So there you are. There's the opening uh, section of Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity. It's a really good book. makes you think and has a lot of good answers to the questions people are asking today. So I would highly encourage you uh, picking that up. Not that many pages, and uh, it's a good read. All right, thanks. Uh, we'll do another podcast soon.